You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So like probably most people in the country, I watched the debate last night, and I'm not going to get into politics at all as I consider this show politically agnostic, but there were some things mentioned that I thought were interesting and might be interesting for us to talk about with regard to Donald Trump and the whole issue of taxes. Now, before we get into that, I do want to remind you that there's a special report on WealthFormula.com that is essentially giving you some ideas on fairly little-known ways of saving thousands of dollars in taxes and certainly something that you should consider downloading. Now, let's start a little bit just about recapping the whole discussion about Donald Trump's taxes. First of all, anybody who's investing in real estate shouldn't be surprised that Donald Trump is not paying very much in, if anything, in federal income taxes. But he's not breaking the law. I mean, listen, you can say what you want about Donald Trump. You can like him, you can not like him. But the reality is that these are laws that are in place and he is following them. And so in that regard, he's not really doing anything wrong. We'll get into real estate in specific in a minute, but let's just talk about something else which he mentioned, which I thought would be informative because, again, this show is about trying to educate people about various financial terms and what they mean. So, you know, one of the things that Donald had mentioned during the debate was the idea of the quote unquote carried interest tax break for private investment fund managers. So whether that's private equity fund managers, whether that's you know hedge fund managers, pretty much the same thing. Or in the case of real estate, you could be somebody who is sponsoring a syndication. So we've talked about syndication before. If you want to get caught up on that, listen to the episode with David Zook. Uh, now, Donald talked about how carried interest was something that probably, in his view, should be phased out because it's not really fair, but that he still uses the carried interest tax break because it's available to him. So here's how it works. Okay, so say you are a fund manager or you are sponsoring some kind of project. Now, as we talked about in our syndication podcast, there has to be somebody who has the know-how and who has to have the skill set to put that entire investment together. Now, whether that's a hedge fund manager or a real estate syndicator, et cetera. Uh, now, the way that it works is that typically the manager takes some percentage of the deal. So, for example, say you are managing a hedge fund and you've got a bunch of investors out there. Now, you're not going to do this for free, and presumably the investors out there are looking to you as a person who knows how to make money. So what you're saying, what is a sponsor, you might say, okay, well, listen, I'm not going to get paid anything until my investors make at least 8% on their money. So that would be called preferred rate. So the manager won't get anything until then. Now, what happens after that preferred rate is variables. Let's say that the manager says that after the 8% preferred rate, the investor gets 50% of additional cash flow and the sponsor gets 50% of the cash flow. In that situation, there is a 8% that has to be paid by the sponsor to the investors. And then after that, it's a 50-50 split. 
This is just an example. This doesn't mean that every deal works this way. So in that case, if there was a total return of 20%, then there would be the initial 8% that goes to the investor, and then the remaining 12% would be split. So the investor would be getting that half of that additional 12%, so 6 plus 8, 14% return on the capital that was invested. And then the remaining 6% that is available then goes to the sponsor. Now, the other thing that happens is that sometimes, well, not sometimes, pretty much always, the the fund ends and everything is sold and there's a big windfall of profits. And so, again, in that situation, the sponsor might say, well, listen, once you get your money back and you get a certain return, you know, then it's a 50-50 split. Uh, I get 50%, we get 50%, and you get 50%. And that's where carried interest comes in because, you know, what we're talking about is money that the sponsor or the fund manager is making on the capital invested by his or her investors. And by definition, that becomes capital gains. And the capital gains taxes, as you know, are significantly less than ordinary income taxes. Now, for a, you know, for a billionaire hedge fund, uh, manager or a millionaire hedge fund. It doesn't really matter. After you get to a certain point, you're talking about the difference between it being invested at, being taxed at the difference between 40% plus down to, you know, potentially 15 to 18%. So those are the types of differences we're talking about in terms of being taxed at capital gains versus ordinary income tax. So this term used to describe the way that the manager is taxed is carried interest. So the carried interest is the essentially the income flowing to the general partner of a private investment fund. And it's, again, it's generally treated as capital gains for the purposes of taxation. And some people think it's unfair because, you know, the managers are making a ton of money. But, you know, frankly, that's the law. And if you look at it logically, that is capital gains. In reality, if the investors are making money that they wanted to make and they had no way of making it before, it's not really that unfair. But, you know, everybody likes to say things are unfair just because certain people are making a lot of money. But that's the way it works. Now, let me also point out with everything else in this podcast, on my website, etc., that I am not a tax professional and I'm not in the business of giving financial or tax advice. So when I tell you something, basically consider it is knowledge for me personally that I may or may not use, but you shouldn't blindly go out and do it because I don't want you to sue me. Basically, I'm just telling you what I know. Now, before making an investment, doing things uh, that are related to your personal tax situation, I highly recommend consulting an accountant and or a tax attorney. But remember that not all accountants and tax attorneys are made equally and that you may find that some of the things that I talk about in this podcast uh, or that others might talk about in this podcast, you go to your CPA and say, hey, can I do that? And they'll say, no way, you can't do that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times how many times that's happened to me, early on at least, before I had my current tax team and my law team. You've got to have a team of advisors that knows what they're doing. Just because somebody's got CPA behind their name or JD behind their name doesn't mean that you've got the person who's going to help you do what's best for you, okay? 
So while I will tell you that I do think that everything that I tell you, you know, you should be consulting with a tax professional or a an attorney of some kind or a CPA, if they tell you you just can't do that, then you might want to get another opinion. And certainly you can get in touch with me on at wealthformula.com to have some deeper dives and conversations about these things. Now, again, one of the biggest problems in my view with high paid professionals is that they spend all of their time working to make money, but they don't focus at all or barely at all on how to keep it. What is your biggest expense? If you're a high paid professional, I pretty much guarantee you that your highest expense you have in your household every year is the income tax that you pay. And if you're a W-2 wage earner, you might not even really be counting that as an expense. You know, it is what it is and you have to pay it. So how can you count something that uh, is inevitable like death and taxes uh, as an expense? Well, it is. Okay. Now, not paying attention to how much you pay in taxes and whether or not you pay too much taxes is downright crazy. I mean, listen, I'm a business guy and I don't have the W-2 problem, but it would be like, you know, if I had a business that only focused on the top line and it only focused on how much money it was making, but didn't pay any attention to its expenses. I mean, essentially, that's what you're doing if you're not trying to figure out how to legally, again, legally reduce your own tax burden. I think that you're really doing yourself a disservice. Uh, Most of the tax code is gray, and it's really important that everybody understand that. And if you have a gray tax code, how are you going to figure out what you can do and what you can't if you have a CPA or tax advisor who doesn't, and if you're not at least interested in finding out for yourself? Now, Talking about reducing taxes makes most high-paid professionals nervous, and it's because we're sort of ingrained into believing that for some reason, if you try to look at ways of saving money from taxes, that you're doing something wrong. Well, that's just not true, and that's a mentality that I think that business owners tend to understand once they're no longer W-2 wage earners. What you find is that, again, the tax code is largely gray, and it's there for your interpretation. And with your tax professionals, you certainly can you know, legally save taxes if it's in the code. The tax code is there for us to understand what's legal and what's not. And if you're doing your best to stay within the confines of the law, you really have nothing to worry about. Now, everybody's worried about getting audited. However, if you're not doing anything illegal, why would you even, you know, why would you worry? I mean, of course, no one likes the idea of getting audited. But if you've done your homework and your tax professionals are doing their homework, there's no reason. And it's uh, pretty much inevitable. I think, you know, most people that I know get audited at some point anyway. So you might as well be saving some money on your taxes legally in the meantime. Now, as you probably know, and we've talked about this before, but the tax code for the most part is written to benefit business owners first and foremost. You heard me talking about that on my podcast several times. Now, if you're a business owner, congratulations, because you're already saving thousands of dollars in taxes compared to your employed colleagues. If you're not, you actually need a new accountant because you definitely have a lot of advantages. Now, What if you're not a business owner, though? Are there still ways to legally reduce your taxes that are not sort of pointless? Well, I think so. Absolutely, I'd say so. 
So first, let's look at the tax implications of your investments. Now, when you look at the return on investment on what you're getting on your portfolio, okay, whether it's stocks, bonds, whatever you're investing in, are you factoring in what you're actually paying in taxes? Well, it makes a difference, right? I mean, if you're getting 8% return on your investment and you're paying a quarter of that in capital gains, then you're only really making about 6%. If you're making 6% and inflation is, you know, at uh, 2%, then you're only making 4%, right? So on the other hand, there are investments where you might not legally pay any tax at all. So I know I talk about real estate a lot on this show. It's because it's a personal interest. And given the, the Donald is in the news so much, let's talk about real estate. So let's say for a second that you bought a $2 million apartment building. Okay, that might sound big, but just bear with me. Let's just, it's easy to do the math here. So to do this, let's say you put down $200,000 in cash as a down payment and the rest of it was a mortgage. It was lent to you by the bank. And let's say that you calculated that the apartment building would yield you 10% cash on cash return on investment per year. So in other words, you said, well, Okay, so now if I invest this money, your calculations show you that if you invest $200,000 into this building after paying the loan payments, paying all the operating costs, you are going to make 10% cash on cash. That comes out to 10%. So you're going to make $20,000 of profit on that building every year. Now, properties like this, will typically go up in value over time. However, the government allows you to factor in something called depreciation when you report the bottom line to the IRS. So now depreciation means decreasing value of property over time. If you're in a business, let's say you're in the restaurant business and you bought a bunch of you know restaurant equipment, uh, stoves, et cetera, you can depreciate those over you know a period of time say five years or seven years. In the case of commercial multifamily real estate, the buildings depreciated over 27 and a half years. Now that would result in a depreciation of approximately $72,727 per year. Now notice that this depreciation value is actually a lot more than the actual income that you produce from the property in a given year. In other words, your actual reported profit on this building was negative, even though you made, you know, 20 grand. So that 10% return on investment that you made is essentially tax free. Now, this doesn't even include a number of other things that you can write off when you have an apartment building or some kind of commercial property. Now, remember, you're paying down that mortgage and that mortgage is creating equity for you, right? The principal that you're paying is creating equity, but the interest payments, the interest on a part of that mortgage is actually also deductible. Okay. So there's, there's that part too. In the meantime, the uh, building itself is not depreciating. In reality, as we know, these kinds of buildings tend to appreciate over time. So again, you make money, but according to the IRS rules, you've lost money. And in fact, because you are a this is considered passive income, you can use those losses to offset other passive income. So for example, if you say you had, uh, one of the things that I like, for example, is investing um, in energy. Now, unfortunately, when you invest in solar or things that are green, you actually don't get the 
tax benefit like you would with oil and gas, but you can get pretty good cash flow. Now, if you get that cash flow and it is considered passive income, then you can offset the losses of your real estate for other passive income. So that's an advantage. And you see a lot of investors take advantage of that because they may have more losses than they actually can even use. Now, if all of your money comes from being a real estate investor and you're a real estate professional, you can write all this stuff off, right? So pretty much all the money you're going to make is going to be tax-free for the most part, right? Now, what if you don't want to buy a $2 million property? Because again, we're getting into things that like, you know, a lot of people out there are saying, well, that's great, Buck. I mean, I'm going to go out and buy a $2 million property. I've never done it before. Now, you know, that that's great advice and I'm just not ready for that. But what else can I do? So what if you're okay being a, more of a passive investor? We talked about real estate syndications a little bit earlier here. So the good news is that you can still get the same kind of tax benefits by investing in real estate as a limited partner. Again, we talked about that sponsorship, that syndication where, you know, somebody's putting together a deal and they're going to give you preferred return of say 8% and then you, then you split some level of that, whether it's 80, 20, 50, 50 with the sponsor. At that point, you're making good return. Maybe you're making 8%, maybe you're making 10, 12, whatever. But basically, what happens is that even though that you're a limited partner in that deal, you are issued what's called a K-1. And a K-1 basically is something that's issued to a business owner, like a partial business owner, which is what you are when you own part of a big property. Okay, So in that K-1, it'll tell you how much you made and and all that, but it is also going to tell you what your effective taxable income is on that money that you made. And in many cases, what you'll find is that not only will you not be paying taxes, but you may actually have a little additional losses, passive losses that theoretically you can then use to offset some of your other investment passive gains. Okay. Now you have nothing to do with the management here. So I don't, you know, this is for all of you out there who, you know, really don't want anything to do with managing real estate or finding real estate, putting deals together, whatever. I'm just telling you that you can invest in other people's deals and get the same tax benefits. And just like you own the property only by yourself, the money generated by the property that goes in your pocket is taxed after depreciation is applied. And in other words, again, you may end up paying no taxes at all. Again, putting that into context. So if you have an 8% return because that was a preferred return and maybe there wasn't anything on top of that, well, that's still a lot better than an 8% return on something that you're going to be taxed at capital gains, right? So capital gains, now you're looking at, okay, well, maybe it's now we're talking about quarter of that maybe. So maybe you're down to like 6%. Well, the 8% that you got on the real estate investment is real. That's what you got, right? I mean, there's no additional taxation that you have to worry about. So that's one of the true benefits of investing in real estate, either as a direct investor or as a passive investor. Now, real estate isn't the only way to save on taxes, okay? Now, I mentioned oil and gas briefly. One of the things that I've been doing is investing in oil and gas private offerings. Now, that doesn't mean I went and bought stock in Chevron or something like that. There are very well-known oil and gas companies out there that go out there and dig wells and that sort of thing, and they need investors. They need private capital to go out and do what they do. And 
investing in one can actually save you some money. Because you see, the government sometimes uses the tax code to promote investments in areas where it believes the country is going to benefit. Now, as you might have heard on the debate last night, we are actually energy independent of the Middle East, and that was the goal. Now, the Middle East actually does affect our oil prices because, you know, they can pump all the oil out there and then create a significant problem with too much supply. And when that happens, the prices of oil dip. And that's what's sort of happening right now. But anyway, getting back to the whole point here, the government wants uh, to invest in oil because it has a desire for the United States to be independent of other countries when it comes to energy. And they actually have accomplished that. And when they have an agenda like that, there are often significant tax benefits in investing in those things, in this case, domestic drilling companies. So essentially, oil companies are allowed to write off, again, through this magic of depreciation, the drilling equipment needed to do their job. Now, the benefit to the investor is that depreciation is passed along. And in real estate, we saw this as depreciation over, you know, like 27 and a half years. And with oil companies, the interesting thing is that most of this depreciation is actually done over the first year. Now, again, you're going to have to do your own research on this and vet your own companies. I'm happy to talk to you in person someday and tell you what I've invested in. But I've researched companies that show depreciation in the first year up to 90% of the total investment. So let's say, for example, you invest $100,000 into oil and gas. Now, if you're able to depreciate 90% of that investment in the first year, that allows you to uh, to take 90000 90,000, which is of course 90% of 100,000, and deduct that off of your taxable income. So if you're in the highest tax bracket, that could reduce your taxes in the first year by about $40,000, right? I mean, that's $90,000 that you don't have to pay taxes on. And another way to look at this is that if effectively you made, okay, because you didn't have to pay it, you made $40,000 on a $100,000 investment in the first year, like a 40% return on investment in the first year. There's also dividends that come from these kinds of oil investments. And in reality, I have to tell you right now, the dividends are not great, okay? Because, I mean, I'm probably get, I'm still probably getting about 5% um, on the uh, uh, dividend payments, which is still better than, you know, some of the other bonds and that sort of thing out there. Anyway, there's uh, an ongoing benefit in terms of how the dividends are taxed as well. So it's sort of the gift that keeps giving. Okay, so it's something to consider. And if you're like me, you know, you know that oil is not going to stay down in the you know forty dollar per barrel range for very long. I mean, there's a finite amount of oil. We're not that close yet to energy, you know, green energy. So there's plenty of room there to potentially consider. And again, if you get in touch with me, go to wealthformula.com, shoot me an email. I'm happy to discuss kind of what I've done in this regard myself. And remember, if you're a W-2 employee, you can still make these investments. And if you do, you're going to get the biggest tax return check of your life. And again, not only is it not illegal, it is in the tax code because the government is encouraging you to make these investments. So I mean, I don't know what there is to worry about that, frankly. 
Now, finally, for those of you who don't like the idea of making money or saving money off of fossil fuels, which I completely understand, there is a green alternative. Now, this is a little trickier and you have to be very, very careful again. But there are various development companies out there uh, that consider, um, amongst other things, the value of conservation in their calculations of return on investment. So, One of the things that you really want to do when it comes to this, because I think it's really important for you to do your own research, is go to Google and go look up conservation easements and tax breaks, okay? Well, conservation easements, basically donating the land in the form of an easement. In other words, you own a piece of land that you are dedicating to the purpose of conservation, It cannot be built on in the future, and it's kept undeveloped for the good of the environment. Now, when such a donation is actually made, the amount that is deductible is not necessarily the cost of the land itself, but rather the appraisal value of that potential development. I know this is getting complicated, but bear with me because this is something that's really, really useful. And I think some of you might find some great benefit to this and feel good about it. So say, for example, there's a piece of land that in and of itself is worth a million dollars. Okay. However, the development on that land might result in a $4 million structure and that's how it's appraised. Okay, and the appraisal is based on all of the plans that are carefully drawn out and so on and so forth for this particular structure. So now in many cases, the amount that's actually deductible to the person who donates that conservation easement is not the one million, the actual cost or the amount that was paid for the land per se. It's the amount that the structure, the theoretical structure is appraised for. So in this case, there's a $1 million piece of land that's donated as a conservation easement. You can still use it for enjoyment. You can still go out there and uh, camp out there. You can hunt, whatever, etc. But because you've foregone the $4 million appraised structure on that $1 million piece of land, you end up being able to deduct $4 million from your taxable income. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that all of you out there have a $1 million piece of land that you can just donate for this huge deduction. I mean, I mean, how many of you out there are actually even needing a $4 million deduction? I mean, I don't need a $4 million deduction. I wish I needed a $4 million deduction, but certainly I don't yet. But this is, again, a situation where you can invest alongside others who are putting money together in an investment. And this, again, is could be a substantial deduction off your taxes while feeling good about the environment. So, for example, say you find out about a conservation easement, somebody who's got a piece of land that they're potentially and going to donate as a conservation easement, the developer's thinking about it one way or the other. You might be able to put in $25,000, and who knows, you might end up with a $100,000 deduction from that. Now, as of today, the deductions taken on this are limited to 50% of your income, but I bet you'd be okay with that. So again, if you'd like to talk to me a little bit more about these types of things, certainly shoot me an email and we can talk. But again, they're things that you should do some research about and figure out if they are right for you. Now, remember, again, with all of these investments, it's really critical to follow the rule of the law. In many of these cases, we're talking about investing with others because, again, you know, you don't probably don't have a huge piece of land that you're just going to go 
uh, donate off as a conservation easement. And in these cases, it's really important to do your due diligence on the sponsors, just like you would for any investment, and make sure, again, that your tax advisors feel comfortable with your investments. Now, now again, I do encourage all of you to go ahead and download the special report on taxes on wealthformula.com. It covers basically a lot of the things I talked about in this podcast. It's an easy reference point. Certainly contact me by email, buck at wealthformula.com. Give me your comments, feedback. It's all appreciated. And until next time, this is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.